Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Money starts right now, live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square. I'm Melissa Lear. Traders on the desk are Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Steve Grasso, and Guy Adami. Tonight, the S&P 500 is less than 1% away from record highs. And a top technician says there's one beaten down group of stocks that's your best bet to catch this rally. We start off with the Federal Reserve. Chairman Jerome Powell sitting on the sidelines for now with no rate cut. Let's get straight to our senior economics reporter, Steve Leesman, who is at that news conference today. Steve. Uh, Thanks very much, Melissa. The Federal Reserve left interest rates unchanged, as you know, at the June meeting, but made a major change in the outlook, suggesting it could cut rates in the months ahead, maybe even at next month's meeting in July. The big change is the Fed effectively ended the policy of patience, just as it was born, actually, where it signaled it wouldn't do anything for several months. It took that word out of the policy statement. Instead, it's now emphasizing uncertainties in the economic outlook and said it would, quote, act as appropriate to sustain the economic expansion. Now, remember, back in March, no Fed official forecast a rate cut in 2019. Now, eight are on board with rate cuts, at least one this year, and seven of those forecast two cuts. And Fed Chair Jay Powell saying even those who aren't forecasting cuts, well, they're leaning that way. A number of those who wrote down a flat rate path agree that the case for additional accommodation has strengthened since our May meeting. Uncertainties surrounding the baseline outlook have clearly risen since our last meeting. It's important, however, that monetary policy not overreact to any individual data point or short-term swing in sentiment. Doing so would risk adding even more uncertainty to the outlook. Okay, so what's it going to take for the Fed to actually cut? I think it's the thing you guys really care about. Well, Powell made clear the committee wants to see more clarity in just how weak the economy is. And he wants to know how trade talks with China are going to work out. So if the concerns about the economy are proven right, in the data, it seems clear the Fed is going to respond. That could happen as soon as July. Melissa, I've been pointing all week to these events. The G20 meeting with Xi, uh, the jobs report coming in early July from June, and then the GDP report and the other data during the month of July. That's what it's going to take to seal the deal. I think what you mentioned, Steve, in terms of how many votes were in favor of a cut this time versus the last meeting, that change is pretty remarkable in such a short amount of time. And we are having a, a great discussion with Fred Michigan on Power Lunch as, as soon as the decision came out. And he said it's very important that the Fed doesn't follow the markets. But that's what seems, at least from my standpoint, from many other markets participants' standpoint, has been going on since, you know, late last year or so. I'm wondering what your take on that is in terms of where, where you think the Fed is in relationship to the markets. Well, I think the first thing to your first point, you know, Shakespeare wrote, turnabout is Fed play. That's exactly what he said. Uh, and, and it happens uh, uh, not so often, but it does happen. So that's the one thing. The, uh, the other, it, it is a sharp turnabout. I, it, I've rarely seen it, I have to say, in about 20 years of covering the Federal Reserve. But there's like this big, we weren't cutting and now we're cutting. Um, th- there's this very weird iterative process going on, uh, uh, Melissa, where essentially the market prices to what the Fed thinks it's going to do, and the Fed prices to what the market thinks it wants to do. So it's like a, it's like a circle there. Um, and, and I think the, the market may have this one right, but it's got to show up in the data. The Fed is kind of like, hey, 
The market's got some information. I'm not so uh, unhumble that I'm not that, that I'm going to uh, uh, ignore what the market's saying. It doesn't mean I'm going to act on it, but it did really make a change in the outlook to kind of meet the market halfway, and we'll see if the data confirm it now. Yeah, Karen's got a question. Yeah, so in the past, it seemed to me the Fed really didn't care so much what the market did, and so I'm wondering now that you say the Fed seems to, you know, have to get some signal from the market. How can you differentiate that from what they're getting from the Trump administration, which I know they try to ignore and have their, you know, their independence be the main thing they like to talk about? How does that fit together? Look, they can't ignore it, Karen. It's, it's, it's the, 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 the criticism is withering. It's unprecedented. It's unusual. Um, I think it stiffens their backbone a little bit. Uh, they wouldn't mind proving the administration wrong. They, what's so weird about it, Karen, is how do you prove the administration wrong? You prove them right about their growth outlook. If you get the better growth, then the Fed's going to have been right. What is that, past perfect tense, something like that? Going to have been right about not cutting rates, or at least even raising rates in December. So, um, And look, there's at least some chance that happens. The economy is supposed to weaken. They have this 2.1%. GDP growth in there. Uh, and I think when, if you start pointing towards a weaker than 2% number it, with the one handle on it, that's when you're going to be able to say, you know what, for sure the Fed is cutting here. Again, the markets are part of the process. The Fed does not want to leave the market in the lurch and have major adjustments, mm -hmm. but it's not going to do it if you're pointing towards strength. And by the way, there's one other interesting aspect here that you guys may want to talk about, which is, does, does the Fed cut if the market is at or above all-time highs, it's a weird That's, scenario. That was the other question that came up uh, in our discussion this afternoon. Steve, thank you so much. Pleasure. Great thank to you. see you. Steve Leisman, our chief economics correspondent. So with the Fed on the sidelines for now, at least, stocks are just uh, not this much away from all-time highs. Ten-year yield sinking near 2019 lows. What do you do, Guy? Well, it's pretty amazing, right? I mean, I thought, I mean, I was probably the only one that thought that the Fed had to really say everything right, had to be more dovish than they possibly could be, and the market, otherwise the market was going to soften in a meaningful way. And here we are. I think Steve thought we'd go higher, and we're higher today, at least for a day. It's a very impressive price action. We're effectively at all-time highs. What do you do now? Well, you try to put your dogma on the side. Again, I think the Fed is making a mistake. It doesn't matter what I think. You try to focus on the things that have been working. I'll say again, despite my views on the broader market, healthcare has been trading well. I think you stay there, and I think you stay with the mining sector as well. It absolutely concerns me, though, and I'll say it again for the fifth day in a row, that utilities continue to make all-time highs. There's something missed in my world. Is that just a low, a low rates kind of well, reaction? Of course, that's clearly just what it is. But, I mean, you can't. I mean, the market driven by utilities, that, that's and real problematic. Estate. Yeah. And, and real estate. But I think the Fed should keep this in their back pocket. I think they have this for the marketplace. And who's going to short the market knowing that the Fed is going to cut? So now we're at 100% chance. But if there's no cut in July, then you still have the same, same ability to say, well, there's going to be one next time. They're not raising rates. I think that's the important thing. They're dovish. Right. Well, closely monitor means we, 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 we could very well cut. And that, that, I think that was the most yeah. important part of the language. Um, if you look at the dot plots, I mean, basically, eight wanted nothing. Seven want possibly 50 basis points. So you have a dynamic here where the market does get everything they wanted, Guy. Um, but I, 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 I would agree the market has priced in so much good news here. Here's the one part of the asset classes that we see rallying. Good news in terms that, of that a is, rate cut. For, exactly. Yeah. And, and to be clear, I don't think rate cuts are good news. I, I wish the market was responding uh, 
uh, really to the fundamentals and the top down, not what seemingly is the bottom up. And what I mean by that is, look, for equity valuations, lower rates are, are just mechanically good. It, it means your input costs, uh, your discount rate, whatever you do your valuation on changes the valuation of stocks. They're worth more in this environment to belabor this point. But here's something that an asset class that actually has been rallying, and it's, it's kind of good news. Look at high yield. Look at credit spreads. High yield is, is back up to where, if you own the, the J&K or the HYG, you're back to where we had the blow-off top in Jan of 2018. So in other words, you've seen credit recover all the way back as if, even if it means that the Fed is basically giving everybody a lifeline, that is a sign that things have healed somewhat, even though I'm not sure they have. Is that dis- though, when you see JNK, HYG do so well, and you've got the 10-year yield in 2019 lows, we've got German bonds, 10-year yields, a negative quarter percent or so. Yes and no. To the extent that junk trades at a a spread over whatever the baseline is, right, whatever treasury you choose. I guess. So we're actually, yes, I actually short some HYG. I think the Fed really got it right today because I feel like why move when you're going to get a lot, lot, lot more data by, you know, uh, by July. July 30. And, and Steve touched on a lot of it, plus all the things that, you know, with the G20 and whether we have any kind of trade deal. Also, we'll really start to see earnings. And to me, that's always the most important thing. This is a lot of noise around the most important thing, which is earnings and what are the outlooks for the second half of the year. I think that, to me, is the most scary part. I, you know, this is as, as worried as I've been. I feel like we are saying if 100% priced in, then where is well, the upside it's, it's not, beside just the, up, the knee-jerk that The upside that is, day? is that if the economy does better, then he has a, Powell has a little bit of a, of a, of a safeguard that he doesn't have to okay. raise. So you have the economy doing better, you have or, earnings doing better, so you're still going to get the market rally. If the economy does, it does worse, then he can always cut. If trade so headlines are worse. there's no worse, scenario where this market goes down? That makes no sense There's one-offs. There always I, I understand. There's, one, there's one-offs, but can you put... Can you put any type of, of rationality on the bounce that we've seen from 27.22 in the S&P to now? It's positioning. People were so negative on the lows, right? and now they had to catch up. Is it a pendulum, though, yes. where we're too much People to are the other still way? not positioned the other way. Volumes have really? been light. Inflation, there's no sign of inflation. The Phillips curve is dead. So you have global inflation non-existent. So this is you have, absolute you have, Goldilocks is what you're saying. This is a Either total scenario, Goldilocks. It's all yes, good, no matter what. May, may I ask this question, and that is the last time we were at these levels on the S&P 500, how would you characterize the risk environment then versus now? Guy. It's interesting. I mean, I don't think, I think the risks are exactly the same. The only thing that's changed exactly. is, the, okay. is, the, is the commentary out of the Federal Reserve. I mean, to me, this entire... Pardon me. Trade seems closer. I think it's different. Uh, well, I, I'll push back on that, I but okay, we can okay. have we can agree to disagree. But, but, but I think I think the only thing that's changed is the Fed commentary. So when I look at the quote unquote smart money, and, and I, I would say that retail and 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 folks that are long only in the wealth management community and a big chunk, if not the major chunk, uh, of the global asset base has has actually been relatively bullish. But if you look at smart money, if you look at long short hedge funds, if you look at, at guys who are paid to basically assess risk, I think they've been badly short. Um, maybe not net short, but they've certainly not been long. And if you look at long positioning of long short hedge funds, we're at five year we're, we're, we're at five year lows in terms of net long positioning, which tells me I actually think this could go a little higher. All right. So does the rally really need a rate cut? And will we see one as soon as July? Let's bring in Tony Dwyer, chief market strategist at Canaccord Genuity. Tony, great to have you with us. Great um, to be we here, should Mel, we should tell the audience, remind them that your price target for the end of the year is twenty nine fifty. Yeah, so, so we're just about yeah, exactly. We're just about bearish. 
Yeah, <laughs> you know, a price target on valuation at this point in the year is kind of stupid. So we're focused on our 3350 target for next year, and I think that might be a little bit too low as well. What happens between now and the end of next year to give us, you know, 400 points to the upside? Inflation stays low. The Fed gets easy. Remember our 1995 analog? It's playing out almost exactly from every angle that I can find. It's almost exactly like that environment. So you don't go into a recession. Remember that where I've been different, I agree with most of the bears. Yes, the economy's slowing. It almost looks like it's going to go negative. That's the bull story. That's always been the bull story because it takes the Fed, it takes rates down. And as long as you know you're not going into recession, that gives you upside in equities. Remember, the average P.E. multiple when cornflation is between one and three percent is 19 times. It was there for most of 16 and 17. Could we, Tony, almost even have had synthetic recession? And what I mean by that is, basically, if you look at the 210 spreads and that which we often say have been these points where we've had uh, the inversions, and you follow this for the last 30 years, you actually see that we kind of done exactly what you're yeah. supposed to do at a recession, uh, even more than we did in Q1 2016 when everyone thought we were getting there. Timmy, I think it's a great point. And this is kind of a, something I'll posit for everybody. In the 1950s, the market quadrupled, and depending on which index, it quadrupled or quintupled. You had three recessions in the 1950s. Inflation was around similar levels to today. Interest rates were around similar levels to today. And you just had very brief recessions. We've had three almost recessions this cycle. We had the European debt crisis, which caused a 19.6% drop in the market. I'm sorry, folks, that's 20% to me. We're not then we had 2015-16, clearly a global industrial crisis on energy price and commodity collapse. And then we had a 19.8%. Again, I will round that up to 20% in, in the fourth quarter of last year and now the slowdown. So we've had almost three right. recession-like scenarios, and the market's traded that way. We're not 10 years into a market cycle. We're five or six months into a market cycle. We had a 20% drop. So, so Tony, if the economy does better... He doesn't cut, and the market rallies. If the economy does worse, he cuts. Is it Goldilocks, the same way that Karen just asked me? Do you see it as Goldilocks? And I know you're a lot more conservative than I, so I'm actually going to follow your opinion. <laughs> but, For yeah. a guy with Goldilocks. Right. <laughs> I, I don't think, I don't think there, there's no world right now in my world where the economic data is going to get aggressively better. I mean, the whole bull story is that it gets worse. It's going to get worse from here. What made the Fed go from tightening on February 1st, 95, to cutting in July, just a uh -huh. few months later, a negative payroll report? I'd be blown away if we don't get at some point either a negative revision but to the recent one or a negative just payroll. Just to press on Steve's other point, and if the, if the data comes up a little bit better, then does your 3350 go out the window because you had just prefaced yeah. this whole thing if it, saying if it's, bulls want this softening in the data. That's the playbook. It, I don't think it'll get that high. But again, you have uh -huh. to go into a sustained recession. So I think it's really important, Mel, to talk about that for a second. How do you know if you're going into a recession or not? People come on TV all the time and say the, the Treasury bond market is telling you we're going into a recession. You're at a 203 on the 10 year. Well, as Tim pointed out, the rest of credits rip it. You got high yield debt, rip it. You got the LQD, which is investment grade debt, at a high. You know you've got an economic problem when high yield, the yield on high yield paper is spiking because nobody wants it and they're selling it. At the same time, treasury yields are going down. That's what creates the gap. What's happening today is it's widening a little bit because treasury yields are going down faster than high yields. So it, there's no areas of credit, mortgage credit, agency credit, 
corporate credit that I can find that show we're in a, we got a problem here and you want to get really scared. All right, Tony, great to see you as always. Tony Thank Dwyer, you for having me, Mechanical Genuity Guy, what do you think? It's fascinating. You know, you, the bull case is that things get worse. And Tony's right. I mean, he's exactly yeah. right. I mean, think how preposterous that is. I mean, it goes to show you that, to me, everything is predicated on what central banks do, not only here, but globally. There's a madness to that. But then last night, I'm flipping around. I'm watching President Trump talk about the greatest economy in the history of our republic. So something's, there's something askew there. I mean, I think I know what it is, but it doesn't really matter. But you can't have, in my opinion, even considering rate cuts in the greatest economy in the history of the United States. All right, coming up, it's Cloud9 after Adobe soars to an all-time high today. And now shares of Oracle are skyrocketing after its earnings report. The conference call is underway. We're bringing the latest headlines. Plus, shares of Alphabet stuck in a fang rut as the company faces uh, shareholders at its Oops. annual meeting today. What is wrong with this stock? We've got the details. And later, Slack goes direct. The $7 billion company getting ready to make its public debut tomorrow. We'll tell you what is at risk for this unicorn. We are live from Times Square in New York City. Much more Fast Money right after this. The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a news alert on Slack ahead of its direct listing tomorrow. Let's get to Leslie Picker at the New York Stock Exchange for the details. Les. Hey, Melissa. The New York Stock Exchange revealing a reference price for where Slack will begin trading of $26 per share. Uh, a direct listing, of course, is not an IPO because it does not raise capital for the company. So that $26 per share price is not the price by which they will be offering shares to investors. It's rather just a psychological benchmark so that when the market making begins tomorrow, when buyers and sellers are matched right here on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange by the designated market maker, then they have a psychological benchmark by which to start that process. So $26 a share represents about double where they last raised a private fundraising in August 2018 at about $11.91 per share. So quite a big jump up for those investors who participated in their Series H round. Melissa. What are the comps to Slack, Leslie? What do they Good say in question. the roadshow? Oh. A lot. Of, well, they didn't have a roadshow because oh, it was right. a direct listing. <laughs> so they only had that investor day. Uh, but a lot of investors are looking at uh, a bunch of SaaS companies, software as a service companies. Workday is one. Dropbox is actually one because the potential total addressable market for Slack could be this opportunity to be kind of an app 
for all needs of an enterprise. So they're looking at various companies that participate in that kind of subscription model uh, that can potentially move beyond uh, messaging, which is what Slack is currently known for, to provide various services for the enterprise. Also, people are looking at PagerDuty and Zoom video communications, which are two recent IPOs, which of course are more than double uh, their what they uh, their IPO price at this point. Um, also, subscription revenues with uh, enterprise as the target customer. Right. Leslie, thank you. Leslie Picker at the New York Stock Exchange. Let's trade this. Um, could this be the next uniform? Direct listing puts a little bit of a different spin on this. And she mentioned the comps, but in terms of how it trades tomorrow, maybe a better comp could be spot. I mean, I don't know. Well, that was for, a, I mean, the so the structure here of that this is an IPO, it's not an IPO, right. really, is, is very interesting. And this is a company that's representative of the fire hose of money that's coming into the VC community and how people are doing it very differently. We've talked about Lyft and Uber. Um, it's a company that's got almost $900 million on its balance sheet right now, if you look at the prospectus, and it's burning a, a tenth of that year. So they can do nothing for 10 years at the current rate and actually still have a balance sheet that's that's. Sort Surviving. Um, I'm not, you know, to speak about the competitive threats from people like Microsoft or whatnot, but that makes this an interesting story for a market that's looked at very different balance sheets. Yeah, I mean, in terms of direct listing, Karen, you're usually you get underwriter support, right? And so that that's going to be one sort of factor in how it trades. Right. Tomorrow. I'm just wondering, since you know they're doing it this way, which is more efficient, significantly cheaper. cheaper yeah. Right. Do they maybe not get the coverage? I don't know. I, I think it's an interesting sort of egalitarian structure. Right to line up buyers and sellers this way, uh, I, I'm wondering, you know, what does it mean for valuation for Facebook? For, you know, does it give us any sense of of WhatsApp? And plus, you, not only do you not have the support, you don't have the lockup. So right. you have you have people who want to sell stock. You have converting uh, B class shares to A class shares. So you don't have the lockup. You get a little more pressure on it. But I think you get a truer picture of what the real market is versus having a the normal The discovery IPO. process is more efficient. Yes, yeah, so you have that reference yeah. point at 26, and then we can gauge it from there. Yeah. Can I go second derivative? Oh, absolutely. Maybe I love third second derivative. That's so new for you, guys. The farther yeah. along derivatives <laughs> you go, yeah. That's the hurtful, more I by the way. It's hurt. I have feelings too, Tim. I just want you to know that. We've been bullish on the exchanges now for a long time. NASDAQ has had a tremendous move, but look at where it's trading now. It's basically 96.5, same level we topped out September 2018. I think you're starting to take profits in some of these names. Year-over-year, volumes have been up. Everything is great, but they've run too far too fast, number one. Number two, egalitarian is not a great haiku word. Oh, well, you could say it's egalitarian, yeah, no, no, and that's no, your second line. It's just line. not a great haiku. How about no, that totally works. Not again. That also works as a there second line. There you go. Anyway, <laughs> I'm Melissa Lee. You're watching Fast Money on CNBC. First in business worldwide. Here's what else is coming up on Fast Tonight. I'm sorry for being direct. Slack is taking off with a direct listing tomorrow. But if history is any indication, it might be a dangerous sign for investors. We've got those details. Plus, stocks are soaring back to all-time highs, with tech leading the way. And a top technician says there's one beaten down group that can help you catch the rally. He'll be here to explain. There's much more Fast Money right after this. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? 
Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Huawei CEO Ren Zhengfei speaking to our very own Deidre Bosa from the company's campus in Shenzhen, China, where he told her he isn't worried about a potential $30 billion revenue miss after the White House's ban on the company. If $30 billion is impacted, then we can reach around $100 billion U.S. dollars. And the financial statement by May, I saw that we're still growing at around 20%. We expect to see some slowing of the growth, but we haven't seen that yet. But we are making adjustments internally. So we project there might be a slowdown. But till yesterday's report, I didn't see any slowdown. And we don't know what will be the growth by the end of the year. But we believe the 30 billion U.S. dollars will be a very small thing. And we can withstand that. We are not a public company. We don't attach importance to high numbers. We focus on the performance, the quality of the performance. This is a very different message than what we're hearing on the U.S. side from the chip makers, the suppliers. So is Huawei CEO downplaying this ban? And what does this say about the trade war between the U.S. and China, Tim? Well, I, I don't expect them to say anything else. Um, and, and yet we listen to Broadcom and we've listened to a bunch of companies say that this is a big deal. U.S. companies are scrambling uh, component-wise and, and certainly guys that were playing into Huawei as, as, a, as an end buyer. So um, the interesting thing is as Huawei's fortunes have, have fared worse and we've gotten headlines on where they are uh, less profitable significantly on the top line also, um, you've actually seen CSI and Chinese stocks, local exchanges have actually started to rally. Um, so there is some sense that this is a, an issue that, that ultimately is coming to a head of some kind. But um, I don't think that that interview tells me that things are as what, you know, I don't take that at face value. Right. But you take the Shanghai, the CSI moving higher as... I, mar- as markets are telling us something very different. And, and markets are telling us progress on that trade. there's progress. Yeah, for sure. Progress on trade. Karen? I couldn't believe a word of that. I mean, I just found it so absurd on so many levels. If you listen to the whole interview, too, there are other other portions of the interview where you're like, really? He said, no, we don't talk to the government. Why would we talk to the government? Why are U.S. companies talking to the Trump administration all the time? We don't have time to do that. I mean, it's it's hard for me to fathom that the government doesn't call them or they don't call the government at any point in time as much as the ones here. I don't know. That's why you can't believe. Sorry. No, go. Yeah. That's, that's why you can't believe I, it. I mean, the, the whole thing is out the window. But to Tim's point, when you start to see these exchanges and these stocks that are China, U.S. trade reliant start to rally, it's telling you something. And that's, again, the positioning. 
and it's a beta position because whatever was positioned in the market here is two or three times X what it is in the trade-related stocks. So you get a, a larger ramp, a larger bullish tailwind whenever you th- see things get more positive. All right. Well, our next guest says despite all the trade fears, the tech rally is brewing and chip stocks are going to lead the way higher. Let's go off the charts with Mark Newton of Newton Advisors. Mark, what are you looking at? Hi, Melissa. So yeah, I think the demise in tech is very much premature. And if anything, I'm betting on a rebound in this group in the next couple months. It comes down to a trinity of really the three things. So first of all, near-term oversold conditions combined with the, the recent stability in the sector along with the ongoing bearish sentiment. You take a look at the equal weight tech ETF, right? This is the Invesco equal weight uh, ETF for technology versus the broader market. When I take a look at this, we've seen the ongoing uptrend. This has not so, shown any signs of deterioration. So we, we know about the antitrust regulation against tech, Huawei implications of this being potentially hurting this tech sector. This has not really hurt technology all that substantially. We've seen this decline of 10 to 20 percent in many tech stocks, but technology, relatively speaking, is still very much in good shape. Uh, the next, we'll look at the semiconductors. We heard Trump's re-election campaign getting kicked off about meeting with President Xi. What happened immediately, we see the socks jumped to the highest level we've seen in the last five days. This sector has gotten beaten up very badly, down really 12% from its highs, about 200 points in the SOX. However, it's up 150% in just the last couple years since the 2016 lows. So I'm looking at this break of the downtrend since late April. We rallied up into early June, and then we pulled back, and now we're starting to make another move. My thinking is we get up to right near 1,500. That would be about a 7% gain in the socks really over the next two to three months. So I'm looking at the time frame specifically in the middle part of August up to September. These are the ways I play it. Micron Technology, MU, stock last year peaked out right around $64 in late May. It's been literally cut in half. Now we're starting to see evidence of this stabilizing just in the last few weeks. The stock jumped over the last couple of days. I, I think this is an excellent risk-reward and a way to play this. I'm projecting a move from right near 34 up to 38 really in the next couple of months. Another one is Xilinx, another one where the stock had pulled back literally about 50% of everything it's done in the last couple of years. A very important area of support near 102. Now you're seeing signs of it starting to reignite yet again, so starting to lift a little bit. I'm also betting on a rebound in Xilinx of between 5 and 10% in the weeks ahead. So I do like this group. I think it's been beaten up unfairly. And if anything, until we see more signs of broader deterioration in the tech space, uh, it makes perfect sense on the eve of what potentially could be an upcoming trade deal. I mean, a 7% move in the socks in the next couple of months, Mark, would be an enormous uh, move. And I'm just curious, what, what is the context in terms of the broader market's move for that to happen? Well, my thinking is S&P likely gets up to between 3040 and 3070 between now and the fall. So I, I do think the recent movement is very constructive with regards to stocks heading into today's Fed meeting and, and really the resolution. And if anything, we're still seeing decent breadth, uh, good momentum, ongoing structure. Uh, you know, healthcare and industrials and discretionary have moved to take technology's place recently, but now tech is starting to show some evidence of stabilizing. So if we can all get those working in the same direction, then we could still see uh, gains during a time when sentiment is understandably subdued, given the ongoing you know, threat of potential global cool down in the economy, along with trade tension that hasn't been resolved. So people seem to be on the sidelines, as Tony Dwyer said, you know, betting potentially too bearish on the hedge fund side. So technically, you know, the market still shows signs that it can rally. So I'm betting on that in the months ahead. Mark, thanks. Good to see you. Mark Newton, Newton Advisors.
Guy. Yeah, Xilinx rings a bell with me. I mean, uh-huh. we do that thing. We go over to the smart board and we do the power pitch. Remember that it's whole thing? And last so year, levels, last year, ahead. last year, I mean, it's January, but last year we, we talked about how everybody would talk about Xilinx. This year, 2019, 5G, AI, the whole thing. And Mark is right. You know, the stock has sold off. But quite frankly, I bet you Xilinx is in the crosshairs with some of these bigger chip makers. And I wouldn't be surprised if it got gobbled up at some point. Regardless, I think Xilinx, with or without a trade deal, goes higher from here. Technology and obviously the semis, they're at the epicenter, epicenter of the entire trade issue. So if you, got, if you think that we're going to see positive headlines going forward, this is where you want to be. So I agree with Mark, 99%, 99%. But if you look at Micron, it's dependent on DRAM pricing. So if you get a pop of 10%, take it, sold, get out of your position, because DRAM has done nothing, and I expect Micron to retrace and move lower. I don't have exposure. I hear. I understand what he's saying about if the market, if they go up 7%, the market goes up something like 4 is what he was saying. The flip side, though, to me would be that these go down significantly more than the market. If the market goes down, let's say, 4%, there's no deal. I, I, don't, I don't love them. They're not, it's not like it's screaming cheap to me. Oh, we, we keep just talking about macro. We keep, you know, blanketing trade war um, dynamics. SMH, obviously, center of the storm. But, but what we are hearing from a bottom-up perspective, company by company, is, is, a, is a tail in of, of itself in terms of inventories and in terms of uh, the cycle. And, and so to say that suddenly, you know, trade war is a panacea for the whole sector, I don't think so. And, you know, three days ago, you could have looked at the semis chart and said that was a terrible chart. That was a chart that was basically kicking down to the 200-day and, and actually looked like it was in a lot of trouble. Meanwhile, if you look at the triple Qs and if you look in mega cap tech, it's actually outperformed. And that's with all the headlines on the regulatory front. So to me, it, would you rather, and here I go doing this by myself, um, I would rather on the triple Qs over the SMH. Is he allowed to do that? He just, just did. did. Yeah. yeah, good point. Sorry. Still ahead, check out shares of Oracle. The stock is soaring after its earnings report. The conference call is underway. We'll bring you the latest details. Plus, Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell weighing in on Facebook's new cryptocurrency, Libra. Mike Buccella of Block Tower Capital will be here to tell us what it could mean for the crypto space. Much more fast. Still ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of Oracle jumping after reporting earnings and briefly hitting an all-time high. Let's get to John Ford back at headquarters with more. John. Yeah, Melissa. Oracle got a nice pop with the beat, as you can just see on the chart, beat on the top and bottom, but faded a bit into the earnings call. But when CEO Safra Katz gave the guidance, things started looking up. It's above analyst expectations. Here's a flavor. This past year, we grew 3%. And for fiscal year 2020, I expect total revenue will grow faster than last year, constant currency, of course, and that we will once again report double-digit EPS growth. They liked that. Uh, the other CEO, Mark Hurd, Oracle has too, cited IDC's assessment that Oracle gained more market share in cloud apps than its rivals. But analysts really wanted to talk about database, which in a way was surprising. Uh, Oracle chairman Larry Ellison said he's seeing signals from cloud usage that the company's new autonomous database is getting strong interest, which he suggested will lead to accelerating growth there. This appears to be another company that has dodged that rumored enterprise spending slowdown. I was talking to Adobe CEO Shantanu Narayan this morning after their earnings that outperformed, and Adobe increasingly is an enterprise company. He too uh, expected continued strong momentum throughout the year. Despite that kind of tepid guidance they gave and didn't raise their full year forecast, Adobe never raises full year this early. So overall, these two companies that report early in the cycle sounding pretty bullish, Melissa. 
All right, John, thank you. John Fort, back at headquarters. Guy, where do you stand on Oracle? So, t- can Tim, would you rather so I can win? Oh, I think Oracle okay. quarter was fine. I think, listen, revenue beat, EPS beat, 13 times forward earnings. Revenue growth is there. EPS growth is there. The stock is cheap on valuation. But if you want to play would you rather, and I'm Which glad you, you asked, Mel. Uh-huh. I didn't. We talked about, <laughs> we talked about <laughs> Adobe last night. Now, Adobe is twice, two and a half times the valuation. But you know what? You might get two and a half more times the stock performance. We said a lot well, of analysts will raise their price targets. A few of them did today. I think Adobe goes much higher from here. I mean, the license revenue for these guys at 15% is, is, is annuity. I mean, this is what people are paying for. This is what guys the stock moving. That, that's, that's bullish. Steve? I'm going to go a little bit out of on the would you rather. They're not exactly in the same <laughs> space, but SAP and Oracle are always compared. SAP is up 32% year to date, and Oracle is up 16%. What I think the, the real interesting dynamic is that Salesforce used to be the quote-unquote cool kids in the room, and those were the established uh, gray-haired gentlemen in the room or ladies in the room. And now you have CRM up 12%. So you're starting to get that change of the guard where you're going back to the more established companies. So I'd go either SAP or Oracle, and SAP's been the one that's been the leader. Oracle's kind of interesting. I'm wondering, on a just historical PE, it's cheap to itself by a fair amount. And, you know, if they've actually turned and momentum is, then it's not expensive at all. All right, take a look at our Kramer cam. Jim is talking to the Adobe CEO following the company's big earnings beat. That is coming up on Mad Money at the top of the hour. Plus, Fed Chair Powell revealing that Facebook discussed Libra with the Federal Reserve ahead of the digital currency's unveiling. Block Tower Capital partner Michael Buccella will be here to explain why this could be the beginning of a crypto renaissance. Facebook, I believe, has made quite broad rounds. And uh, around the world, really, with regulators, supervisors, and lots of people to discuss their plans, and that that certainly includes us. And we're, you know, it's something we're, we're looking at. You know, there are potential benefits here. There are also potential risks, uh, particularly of, of a currency that could, uh, you know, that could potentially have large application. That was Fed Chair Powell today addressing Facebook's big cryptocurrency unveil this week. This is lawmakers already pushing back on the tech giant, calling for Facebook to put a halt on its Libra launch plans. Our next guest says this is only the beginning of the crypto renaissance. Let's bring in Mike Buccella, partner at Block Tower Capital. Mike, it's good to see you again. Good to see you. Um, You actually think that Libra is going to help the crypto community in general because if a small percentage of people who adopt Libra actually diversify, that could be a tailwind. I don't understand, though, why these people who use Libra, who would use Libra, would be interested in diversifying into other coins. Sure. So, so I think a few things. What, at the start, this is more of a global payments announcement than a Facebook announcement. This is, Facebook is one equal part of 28 members, soon to be 100, over the course of five years, um, that will affect anything that touches transfer of value. Um, I think the things they've done right uh, is obviously a lot of regulatory pushback. Things they've done right is, for example, they register with FinCEN already, done. They have MSB licenses in 50 states. So they've taken the regulatory step forward first. Um, They did focus on, again, a lot of what cryptocurrencies represent are grassroots efforts. They're now taking one of the largest distribution forces in the world, 2.7 billion monthly active users, and are creating what is hopefully um, a very valuable asset uh, for the digital asset, crypto asset industry going forward. Um, and they provided a very clear and transparent roadmap to doing so. Right. I mean, I, I get all that, but I'm still trying to figure out why this is actually good for the crypto community. I mean, I feel like this embodies exactly what crypto was supposed to be. 
and never became or hasn't become yet. Well, you, you have to separate the ideologies of both. So the reason they can, they can coexist is because the folks who invest in Bitcoin are hedging against trade wars, are hedging against currency wars. They're, they don't trust governments. They're initially, back in, in, the, in the onset of, of, of crypto assets, they were the cypherpunk and anarchist groups, the Austrian economists. Sure. Uh, the reason that this will eventually work is that if you onboard even 1% of those 2.7 billion monthly active users and they're using whatever it may be, Calibra's wallet out of Facebook or another competitive wallet, the, the potential for them to diversify their crypto assets into a, I would consider this consortium its own sovereignty now, into a non-sovereign entity, um, that could be something that's appealing. Why do you think Facebook users want to do that if they haven't done it already? I guess that's, that's what I'm trying to make the link between sure, sure. So what, what that draw there's is. There's still many people who want to own crypto assets but aren't comfortable with the UI, the UX. Facebook is an expert in user interface and user experience. They're going to make it almost seem, seamless for you to transfer your fiat dollars into Libra tokens and hopefully they then tend to support additional tokens. That's and what go Tether for. was supposed to be but never was. Tether didn't have... MasterCard, MasterCard well, it didn't have Visa, any PayPal, backing. It Facebook. didn't have the dollars Correct. Yeah. <laughs> behind it. Yeah. I mean, many, many problems. So to the extent that you think you just want to be in cryptocurrencies, to the extent that those are speculators, this is not a speculation at all. This is the anti-speculation. This is pegged at, you know, whatever the basket is. Yeah. So I don't get that part of it. So again, shouldn't be viewed as a speculation, as, as a speculative asset. Right? This is backed by USD, Euro, Yen, uh, Pound. Uh, the, the idea is that it remains a stable asset pegged to those basket of currencies. Uh, but it's, what it's going to do is open up a, a payments ecosystem or a tra value transfer ecosystem that didn't exist before. There's 90 million companies in the Facebook ecosystem. If you include the ecosystem of the entire consortium of, of t large tech companies, venture capital firms, I think eventually financial services firms. I was at Goldman Sachs macro conference in Toronto yesterday, and the opening remarks from, from, from David Solomon were, uh, you know, were, were about obviously the macro environment more broadly, but they touched on potentially this disruptive factor I, in fintech. I, I think that I think what Karen is getting to is a skepticism that a Facebook user of Libra would be the kind of person, even a percentage of them, that would speculate on other digital assets. Right. So again, um, I go back to I, I go back to many people who want to access this space but are too nervous to at the right. moment. It may be one percent. Okay. Maybe five. So so piece that together though with if a trade deal happens. And a lot of people in this space are saying, oh, you know, uh, there's a, a, a almost exact negative correlation to when China put tariffs on in May and, and the S&P 500 and, and Bitcoin. If, if we reach a deal, what other catalyst is there? For the, for, for for the demand for non-sovereign non assets, for, for crypto. Yeah. Uh, it, it, again, it represents digital value in a way that we've never had before. This is the, this is the you know, if, let's, say, let's take Bitcoin, for example. It's the largest of, of them all. And... and um, clearly the dominant player in this space. That is, a, that is a digital store value that cannot be inflated. It cannot be touched. It cannot be confiscated. That is, that's what the real inherent value in Bitcoin is. But the catalyst to go beyond 9,000, to go to 10, to go to 15. An alternative asset that... So it's the same that, stuff that existed before. The same, and that, and really, so the, okay. the driver of performance of Bitcoin this year, this was well known. You know, Facebook announced this a while ago. It's, it's not a shock to anyone. The real drivers of what's happened in Bitcoin were, were all the other announcements thus far. Fidelity finally launching their custody product. You have Whole Foods, AT&T, Nordstrom, other companies accepting cryptocurrency. You have hundreds of engineers within each of the exchanges that are developing faster and better trading, trading engines. Right. You have a robust options market. We're looking at variant swaps in crypto assets now, which is pretty exciting to have. Mike, good to see you. Good to see you. Mike Pichella. Thank you. Tim, what do you think? 
Well, I, I think Facebook has certainly had a huge benefit from this news. And, and the reality is that um, when Mike talks about that there's been interest in speculation, there's also been interest at, at a time when there's been uncertainty around the Fed, it, it sounds like it's the new gold. That's not really the, the essence and, and the, you know, the ethos for, for why people said they were coming forward with crypto. It's why we knew crypto was a very popular place for people to trade and be speculating because it was wildly volatile, because the markets were inefficient. So um, ultimately, when I hear that some of the biggest payments folks in the world are developing this network together, that's peer-to-peer payments. Um, doesn't necessarily mean that it's all crypto. But uh, again, I think the reason for crypto has been more about speculation. Again, Mike touched on this, but second derivative again. If you wonder why banks are trading like utilities, I think this doesn't happen obviously next week or a month from now, but banks are being disenfranchised by exactly the things that Mike and Tim just started talking about, which is why, in my opinion, you know, there might be some upside in banks, but to me it's sort of mitigated and probably quite limited in this environment. All right, coming up as Slack announces its pricing for its direct listing shares of Spotify have been stuck in no man's land since its direct listing last year, but you won't believe what options traders are betting. We've got that next. We're live at NASDAQ and Times Square. More Fast Money still ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. We found out moments ago Slack's reference price will be 26 bucks a share ahead of its direct listing tomorrow. And the only other heavy hitter to list shares directly was Spotify. And the stock is right back where it started from more than a year ago. But options traders aren't betting on the stock saying put for long. Mike Coe is in Massachusetts today with the options action. Hey, Mike. Oh, hi there. So, yeah, Spotify actually sees pretty good options volumes. We've seen Average call volume over 4,300 contracts a day and average put volume of over 2,300 contracts a day. So calls have been outpacing puts by roughly two to one. And where we're seeing the highest open interest right now is actually the August 160 calls. Those were trading around $5 last I looked. So buyers of those calls are betting that Spotify could be above that $160 strike price by at least the five bucks that they paid, which would be up about 13% from where the stock closed today. And I think it's going to be interesting when we take a look at Slack, unlike some of the IPOs where the options markets really had very wide spreads and had very much lower forward prices due to the very high borrow costs, essentially, because of the high short interest, whether it's going to be more like Spotify, where we don't really see that. Not a very high short interest, very tight spreads, and no real discount in the forward prices. And so it'll be interesting when we see Slack actually list, whether that's what we see, something more like Spotify and something less like beyond Uber and Lyft. All right. I'm glad you're getting around town in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, Mike, hitting another location. Nice lighthouse. Thanks for that, Mike Coe. Uh, for more Options Action, full shows Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, Final Trades. <laughs> The stock we've forgotten that's kind of decoupled from the trade war is, is Apple, in my view. And I think it gets back to the fundamentals that, that to me, still make this a buy, if nothing else, for the capital markets activity. Apple. Chairwoman. Yes, when we talked about a couple of months ago when it traded down so sharply, it wasn't when the market was down. It was on fears of health care for all. In April, it hit a low of 227. Now here at 291, I think you got to take a little money off the table. Sell some at them. Steven. Bausch Health companies. BHC, it's a name you don't talk about a lot. I'm still long it. Take a look at it. Technically, it's setting up well. Guy Don. See, I know what the chairwoman is saying with Anthem. I respect yes. it. But, but I'll but say again, okay. the crosshairs are now lifted from the space. UNH has been performing well. I think you stay with United Health. All huh. right. That does it for us. See you back here tomorrow. Five for more Fast Money Meantime. Don't go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. 
Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.